How wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Anna Frank Welcome to Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends, where all things philosophy are discussed by your co-hosts Credo and Glaucon. And on this road that never ends, we'd like to bring you along to discuss ideas like the Socratic good life, Cartesian doubt, the mystery of the Tao, Buddhist enlightenment, and the very questions which cover what it means to exist as a person. It's the place where thoughts from the past live on eternally in the realm of great ideas and monumental thinkers, and where those ideas cross with the present day to give meaning and purpose to the world around us. Because after all, the unexamined life is not worth living. All right, so our story of Stoicism tonight begins with uh, Zeno. This is a man who was born in 334 BCE in Citium, Cyprus. We don't know much about him because little information was preserved, but we do know a few things. So we know that his appearance was haggard with a look and heritage that gave him the nickname of the Phoenician. We also know that he was hardworking, and we know he was considered the founder and father of the philosophic school of Stoicism. Now, Zeno was born into a merchant family. He learned a lot of the tools of the trade from his father at an early age. We can imagine that there was little doubt in his mind in which direction he would take in terms of his career. And his father introduced him to written philosophy and encouraged his education as well. So it was at this time that Zeno took to being a merchant, quickly found success, and he would make routine voyages across and throughout the Mediterranean. All signs point to a man that was happy at work, doing what he loves, and making a good fortune doing so. But this wouldn't last forever. So on one particular voyage, around 300 BCE from Phoenicia to the Piraeus, it was the turning point of his life. And fittingly, he was headed towards the Piraeus, which you may recall is the very place that Plato's Republic opens up with Socrates discussing philosophy with his fellow Athenians. So on this trip, Zeno was transporting cargo, a ship completely full of extremely expensive dye. And it's believed he spent most, if not all, of his fortune just acquiring it, which he would then sell for profit once he got to the Piraeus. But during the trip, he encountered quite the storm. It tossed his ship on the rocks, it pounded anything he had left, and by the end of it, everything, his cargo, possessions, his wealth, all of it was lost. He was fortunate to have survived. He was stranded thousands of miles from home, destitute and with nothing. He was washed ashore in Athens. So at such a low point, he wandered into a bookstore and thought there he might find the direction and guidance he so desperately needed. He was immediately drawn into Socrates. In fact, he was so impressed, he asked the bookseller if he knew where Socrates could be found. And it was at that moment that the popular Greek Cynic philosopher Crates of Thebes walked past. The bookseller pointed to him and said, follow that man. Zeno did. Zeno would go on to study under Crates and begin to develop what's now known as the School of Stoicism. But in his life, Zeno was both a student and a teacher. His students were known as Zenoians at the time, though they'd later be called the Stoics. And he quickly became a big deal. I mean, kings, nobles, the celebrities of the day, if you will, they would all pay him visits when they were nearby. He would go on to publish many works on logic, physics, and ethics. Personally, he lived a simple life. He abstained from most sexual pleasures and excess. His most famous work actually was called Zeno's Republic, if that gives you any insight into his standing. He's the model that would become the blueprint of the Stoic. And if you're wondering, the crater on the moon named Zeno is in fact named after him. But at this point, you may be wondering, why aren't his works more well known? 
why aren't they cited along other Stoic masterpieces like Seneca's Letters from a Stoic or Marcus Aurelius's Meditations or the Discourses by Epictetus? And the reason is simple. Not a single work of Zeno has survived to the present day. In fact, Greek Stoicism as a whole is really underrepresented compared to Roman Stoicism, and this is because not many Greek works survive. So much of our discussion later on, both this episode and future, will revolve around the Roman Stoics, but that doesn't mean that others didn't write about Zeno and his teachings. I mean, after all, that's how we know anything we know about him today. But in terms of Stoicism generally, you know, the school really revolves around four cardinal virtues. You have wisdom, temperance, justice, and courage. And to illustrate this, we can look at Zeno's principal teachings, including one about the nature of the universe. Because much like Spinoza, Zeno believed that the universe consisted of matter governed by a divine principle, and that God was either the universe or within the universe. So take this quote by Zeno, as noted by Cicero, quote, that which exercises reason is more excellent than that which does not exercise reason. There is nothing more excellent than the universe, therefore the universe exercises reason. This tells us a lot about Stoicism. For one, it sets out a defining Stoic belief that the universe is determined, but also that rational thought is the way to knowledge, and that whatever the universe is controlled by is rational. And as we'll show, Stoicism goes on to leverage this idea to build out many of its key practical teachings, such as controlling emotion and guidance through reason. And at the end of the day, the goal of this philosophy is really just to reach a state of eudaimonia. This is the Greek word that describes well-being, flourishing, and virtue. Zeno would often say, happiness is a good flow of life. But he wasn't the only early Stoic. So what can you tell us about Chrysippus? So Chrysippus of Soli, he was born in Soli, which today is in Turkey, and he moved to Athens as a young person. He was born circa 279 BC, died circa 206 BC, and he was a pupil of Cleanthes and the second founder of Stoicism. And a uh, very powerful thinker, he excelled in logic, he had a theory about the nature of knowledge, thought a lot about ethics, thought about physics. He had a deterministic view of reality, but also sought a role for personal freedom in that picture. And so we have something like a compatibilist here, like other people in the Renaissance period. He thought that the nature of ethics and being a good person was dependent on understanding the nature of the universe, which is similar to Spinoza and other thinkers, other rationalists. He thought that we had to control the passions, and if we didn't, that they would crush our souls, <laughs> uh, which is uh, reminiscent of uh, Plato's work, obviously. And he actually attended the Platonic Academy for a period of time. Uh, he was of Phoenician descent. He was a kind of a thin, smaller person, and he's thought to have been a long-distance runner. He started off well in the world, had a substantial fortune, but that was confiscated uh, by the uh, king at one point. And he threw himself into the study of Stoicism and was well known to kind of be an audacious and very confident character. You know, we could imagine maybe someone like Descartes. And as I was saying, he is he's like, very similar to the rationalists in the, in the uh, Renaissance because he was famously known for having said that if you give me the principles, I will find the proofs myself. So here we have this idea that if you're given the first principles, you're able to derive the proofs of something. 
And when he died, he died at the age of 73 during the 143rd Olympiad, actually. There are a couple different accounts of his death, both involving alcohol to some extent, undiluted wine, because a lot of times the Greeks would drink their wine diluted with water. And he was thought to have been drunk and kind of that kind of led to his death to some, in some way or another. <laughs> One account is that he died in a kind of a laughing fit, but he was talking about drinking at the time. And so I think in either of the accounts, alcohol is somewhat involved. And he took the doctrines of Zeno and Cleanthes and kind of brought them together and developed a system of Stoicism. And he created a system of formal logic. And so it's very interesting because Aristotle, you know, talks a lot about logic. And he talks about it in a certain way. For example, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal, something along those lines. But Chrysippus really does something more than that. He creates a kind of a formal deductive system of logic. And so, for example, he has things like if-then statements, conditional statements, and statements, which are conjunctions, and either-or or disjunction statements. But he also has a couple of other things. He has statements like, because it is day, it is light. And so here, the because statement is different than a conditional statement. And there is, there is a kind of a difference there in the nature of the causal connection. And then also he, he talks about things in terms of likelihood, which is like modal logic. And so those kinds of notions, the idea that there's a difference between an explanation and an argument, and that there's a difference between the way we have to weight things when there's possibility versus necessity, are pretty advanced logical ideas that have really been worked out for us in the last hundred years. But we see Chrysippus already has these kinds of distinctions in his logical system. And then he also develops kind of a deductive system of logic, which we have, natural deduction. And for example, he has modus ponens, which is something very famous in logic that most people that study basic logic kind of experience. And that's the idea that if A, then B, A, therefore B, and then we have modus tollens, which is similar. It's if A, then B, not B, therefore not A. So for example, in terms of modus ponens, if it is day, it is light. It is day, therefore it is light outside. Or we could say, if it is day, it is light. It is not light, therefore it's not day. And that's modus tollens. And then we have a couple of others, which are not really used today. We have not both A and B, therefore... If it's A, then it's not B, because you can't have both. It's not both day and night. It is day, therefore it's not night. Then we have other ones. We have either A or B, A, therefore not B. We have either A or B, not A, therefore B. So we have these things which don't may, maybe don't seem like too, too much of a big deal, but as we know from our earlier episodes, the very nature of computers and the idea of writing computer programs and getting these machines to do what we get them to do today is based on these kinds of logical systems. And we see a very advanced logical understanding in Chrysippus. Another interesting point about Chrysippus, before we move on, is that he thought that dogs were rational. And if you remember back to our episode on courage, the lackeys, when we were talking about 
Plato and Socrates' ideas about the nature of courage, they argued that dogs really don't have reason, aren't rational. And here we see Chrysippus putting forward the argument that dogs are rational and can use deductive reasoning to function in, in the world. And, it's, and it's, it's interesting because it's something that I've thought from time to time that it's pretty obvious that animals do seem to be rational in some ways. And there's been research done now, and it's pretty clear that crows, for example, do use uh, reason. Uh, they've, they took a worm and they put it on top of uh, the meniscus of water in a very thin glass that a crow could not get its beak down far enough into to grab the worm that was floating on the meniscus of the water. And they left some rocks sitting next to it, and the crow picked up the rocks and put them into the water to raise the water level so that it could grab the worm. Surprisingly, they also varied the sizes of the rocks and repeated the experiment, and the crow began with the largest rocks first, recognizing that those larger rocks obviously would displace more water. So another example, pretty clear example, that there's rationality there and, and there's something like deductive reasoning going on. Also, there are accounts of bonobos using sticks to measure the depth of water before crossing streams. And there are also accounts of elephants using uh, reason to solve problems. So it's not something, I think, I would agree with Chrysippus, it's not only in the human realm that we find reason. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a little bit about Chrysippus. Then let's talk a little bit about Epictetus. Epictetus was alive from circa 50 CE or 135 CE was when he died. So 85 years, long-lived person. He was a Greek Stoic philosopher. Interestingly, he was born into slavery and he was a slave until fall of Nero, the death of Nero. And when Nero died, he was around the age of 18 and he became a free person at that time and was eventually teaching philosophy and had studied Stoicism under his wealthy master. He was also, interestingly, maimed as a young person, disabled. One of his legs was messed up. And one of the accounts of the source of that maiming is that it was his master when he was a slave who broke his leg. So a uh, very interesting experience for Epictetus to have had early on in life, especially because he became such a powerful Stoic thinker because it's exactly the kind of experience we might expect a person to have to think about that would cause either a person to kind of deteriorate and break apart, fall apart, or to find a way to reconcile that with life and to move forward in life. And Stoicism seems like the perfect sort of philosophical tool for people that have to go through suffering in life and and move forward in a healthy way you know and that that's one of the powerful things i think about stoicism generally that attracts people to it and always you know since since it's been around people have been attracted to it and i think that's one of the things that attracts people to it is the fact that it arms you with some powerful tools for dealing with the vicissitudes of life like the kinds of experiences that epictetus had when he was young and other things we can say about him real quick are that he was thought to have been a very powerful and persuasive, charismatic speaker and could get people to listen to him and understand what he was thinking about. 
in a very powerful way. He was also thought to have been a very simple person, lived a very simple life with few possessions, spent a lot of time alone, living alone. So kind of reminiscent of Spinoza, once again, you know. And he is thought to have, when, when he became an older person, to have adopted a child and lived with a woman who helped him raise the child, take care of the child. And the child would have, would have been destitute if he wouldn't have, wouldn't have done this. So kind of at the very end of his life, he, he had a, something like a family. So it's a very interesting character. Also, he thought that the most important thing to kind of begin with is a recognition of our ignorance and our gullibility. And this is something that we've seen again and again in philosophers and powerful thinkers, is this idea that we have to be skeptical in the beginning. You know, we saw it with Descartes when he said, you know, for once in my life, I've decided to call into doubt all those things that I could possibly question in the meditations. Or Socrates, when he says, I'm wise because I realize I'm not wise. And we see the same kind of thing with Epictetus. We also have this idea that there are sort of three levels of knowledge. There's the first and most necessary part of philosophy concerns the application of doctrine. For example, people should not lie. And there we get kind of something like philosophy in action, which is something that Epictetus is known for, a way of life. Philosophy is a way of life. And I think reminiscent of Socrates. Socrates was like that. The second level of reason is that the second concern is that reason is that why people should not lie. And so here we see that we start with people should not lie, and then why should they not lie? And then the last point is that we need to examine and establish exactly why these reasons that we're giving for people not lying have a foundation. And so I think here we're, ideally, we're linking those things to first principles or something like that so that we have like the basic rational structure in place and then we're able to have that as a solid foundation. And this kind of like tripartite separation of the nature of reason and the subject matter of philosophy is similar to what we talked about with the three levels of knowledge in Buddhism, where instead of experiential wisdom as the, the deepest level, here we have something like being able to tie those rational arguments to first principles. And that is something that, you know, obviously Spinoza, Leibniz, Descartes, Plato, all these guys would love to do. I don't think I've seen a version of that that is foolproof yet, but I guess we can keep looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of the things we can say is that choice is very important to him. Being able to choose and the power to choose and linking that up to goodness and we can get into those kinds of things a little bit more, I think, when we get into some of his aphorisms. But for example, one thing he says is, I have lost nothing that belongs to me. It was not something of mine that was torn from me, but something that was not in my power that has left me. And so here uh, we get this idea that if something is not something I have control over, then it's not something I need to trouble myself with. And it's not really in my purview and part of me, right? And we'll, we'll circle back to that when we talk about some of the aphorisms that, that are in the Enchiridion. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, just a, another a quick word on Chrysippus before uh, getting to Epictetus. I thought one really cool quote that kind of shows Chrysippus in the type of person he was. Uh, he said, if I followed the multitude, I should not have studied philosophy. And, you know, this is 
it reminds me of the fact that a lot of these people, you know, we're looking back at the early teachers of this and the early people discovering this, and it wasn't really as far along in its, in its development as other schools of philosophic thought. I mean, when you choose Stoicism at that time, you know, it's really because you're looking inside yourself and you're starting to find answers and, and you know, you're trying to make sense of it, but it's not that you wanted to follow the crowd for something that's already developed. So I thought that was really interesting because again it's easy to look back and be like oh well yeah they could have chosen anything but it was still very much in its development and that's the type of person that chrysippus was right he was someone who was willing to kind of take that stand and really uh be a loner if he had to because he he knew what he was discovering was really of value but yeah no i i agree with you with epictetus uh, there's so many aphorisms in the Enchiridion that we can learn from so yeah just go ahead and start us off with one all right so number nine Sickness is a hindrance to the body, but not to your ability to choose. And this is like we were just saying a minute ago with choice. Unless that is your choice. Lameness is a hindrance to the leg, but not to your ability to choose. Say this to yourself with regard to everything that happens. Then you will see such obstacles as hindrances for something else, but not to yourself. So this is a puzzling kind of statement, right? It's not to myself, but wouldn't you, don't you think to yourself, what are you talking about? If my leg is injured and my leg is lame, and we know that his leg was, then isn't that myself? And isn't that something that is part of me? And isn't it completely appropriate for me to be upset about it and spend my time thinking about it and feeling sorry for myself? Uh, most people would think so, but actually, this is very similar to a, a kind of Buddhist point that... Uh, having to do with self and not self. That things that I do not have any control over, things that I cannot change, are not actually properly part of myself. They are not actually part of me. If I have no control over these things, if I don't have any ability to change these things, then they're really not part of me in a, in a proper sort of way. And actually, interestingly, this idea is also similar to Socrates' idea of not being a busybody in the Republic. And the reason why I say that is that when we're talking about the state, right, an individual shouldn't be a busybody getting into other people's business. But when we're talking about the person, the analogy of the state to the person, worrying about and getting into business that I can't change and it's not really part of what I need to worry about, is inappropriate. And so, so there is also that relationship here. No, for sure. I mean, this is a theme that we're going to continue to see. Like it goes back to the eudaimonia as well, right? If you're trying to be happy, then how can you start to worry about things you can't control, right? I mean, how can you ever expect to find happiness or some sort of good feeling there when it's all just chance, right? You know, we'll get into it later, but you know, Seneca often would say, you know, you can't trust fortune. Right, and right. That, that's kind of the, the, the similar idea that, that you're saying. Actually, just the one before that, number eight, the aphorism, he says, Seek not that the things which happen should happen as you wish, but wish that the things which happen be as they are, and you will have a tranquil flow of life. This to me just really stood out, you know, that don't wish for things to be as you want them to be, just wish that they are the way that they are. And this is about, you know, reining in what you think you can't control and what you actually can control. And... Epictetus kind of wisely uh, points out here that trying to change or control these things that are not in your control or your ability to change is just going to interfere with your tranquil flow of life. Because this does touch a little bit on what we've talked about with free will, 
and Eastern philosophic discussions of acceptance, Wu Wei, that kind of thing. But it also starts to bring into fruition this Stoic principle that when you not only accept the things being as they are, exactly as they are, but you actually wish them to be that way, I think it gives the person a sense of inner peace, right? Because we have to think about Stoicism as a personal philosophy, right? Kind of like much of the Eastern stuff we've talked about as well. It seems very much focused on the individual. And so the practitioner of Stoicism really benefits from this mindset because like many forms of Eastern philosophy, once you can adopt this frame of thinking, you become more relaxed and you become more part of the world, right? Because you don't try to change things that you can't. You don't wish things to be different. You just literally are with the world. There's no sort of friction there. You're not going against the grain in a way that would disturb your inner peace. To me, that one really stood out. No, that's excellent. Good. That's great stuff. And I really like number 11 too. It's similar in some ways. Never say of anything, I've lost it, but I have returned it. Is your child dead? It is returned. Is your wife dead? She is returned. Is your estate taken away? Well, and is not that likewise returned. But he who took it away is a bad man. What difference is it to you who the giver assigns to take it back? While he gives it to you to possess, take care of it, but don't view it as your own, just as travelers view a hotel. So here, very interesting, right? I have to think of possessions which are in my sort of circle as things that have been given to me by the giver, you know, and are potentially going to be returned at some point, are going to be taken at some point, really. And it is very interesting because at some point in my life, I was a younger person, I, I had a, I'd gotten a car and then it was a, was a new car, new to me at least, you know, and uh, right after I got it, somebody dinged my door and I was like, what? Somebody just destroyed this like perfect vehicle that I had. Now it's got this ding on it. And then every time I went to open the door, I'd look at that ding and I'd be like, oh my gosh. And then I eventually realized, you know, part of the responsibility of acquiring something is realizing that it's going to be something that can go away. And once I kind of started thinking about things that way, it made a huge difference in my life because whenever I acquired some new thing, I would just think to myself, well, you know, part of my responsibility of having this is just knowing that it's going to eventually go away. It's not always going to be the way that it is. And at some point, it's going to be completely gone. And that has helped me in life. And I think that's a similar idea to what we're seeing here. And it is interesting, right, thinking about it as a traveler and then using a hotel room. It's very different than something being your possession, you know, and, and sort of like being very, very focused on possessing things and having them be yours. And really, that's an illusion. I mean, you know, we know, as they say, right, you're not going to be able to take that with you when you go. And so it's definitely, it's definitely not going to be something we're going to take with us into the next life. So at some point, anything we have right now is going to be gone. Another kind of interesting point here is that this reminded me of Job in the Bible because God takes everything away from him, takes away his wife, his kids, his estate, everything, and he's just living in the gutter and he's got, he's sick also, right? So, and still believed in the good, believed in virtue, even in that state. And that is similar, I think, to other great people that we know and we can think of. 
like Socrates, you know, he, right at the very end of his life, he was of good cheer. And uh, there are accounts of, of Hume being like that as well, actually. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, there's the aspect of material things as well as the, the immaterial, right? And we'll get into that a little bit later about things that you don't possess, right? Such as someone's opinion about you. And so when you chase those kinds of things, uh, you end up basically kind of becoming your own enemy in some ways. You know, number 44, I, I thought was also very telling of just, and remember, you know, this is Epictetus, right? A slave. So hearing him talk about, you know, nothing really belongs to you and you're, you're basically a traveler in a hotel in the world. And it, I don't know, it just rings a little bit differently when it comes from him. But here's number 44. He says, these reasonings do not cohere. I am richer than you. Therefore, I am better than you. I am more eloquent than you, therefore I am better than you. On the contrary, these rather cohere. I am richer than you, therefore my possessions are greater than yours. I am more eloquent than you, therefore my speech is superior to yours. But you are neither possession nor speech. So this is an extraordinary passage where Epictetus is basically pointing out that to start with more riches or eloquence, it doesn't really make anyone better. It's simply that you have more of something. Second, that you're neither possession nor speech. And I think Epictetus is really centering in on this idea of what our essence really is and what our essence really is not. You know, many can measure their existence and their worth by possessions, but Epictetus is warning against this here. It's not just incorrect, at least according to Epictetus, but think again of what it would do to you as a person if you do think this way, right? This is a very individualistic kind of uh, philosophy. So, you know, if you're seeking eudaimonia or the ultimate happiness, this doesn't really seem to be the way of uh, inner peace or, or happiness, right? Because the key, as we'll learn, is to instead measure yourself and focus on things within your control, right? Things which are more intrinsic rather than extrinsic, uh, as you were just talking about with possessions. And I think the way that he says it is also very blunt, but also to gain a little bit of attention and reflection from the reader. So, you know, well done. No, that's right. And it, actually, along the same lines, just I'll just get into a little part of 14, kind of in the middle of 14, he says, but if you wish to have your desires undisappointed, this is in your own control. Exercise, therefore, what is in your control. He is the master of every other person who is able to confer or remove whatever the person wishes either to have or to avoid. Whoever then would be free, let him wish nothing, let him decline nothing, which depends on others, else he must necessarily be a slave. So same kind of idea. And one other thing I wanted to tie it back to, or tie it forward to, is... <laughs> The St. Francis prayer, the standard prayer that people sometimes say, which is, give me the courage to change the things I can, give me the serenity to accept the things I can't, and give me the wisdom to know the difference. And this seems really, really closely related to what we're talking about here, because you've got this idea that you have to be able to change the things that you can change. And that's going to require courage. It's going to require perseverance. It's going to require being steadfast and pushing towards it. At the same time, you don't want to do that against an immovable object. So in those kinds of situations, you need to have serenity and accept things the way they are. However, <laughs> the hard part here is distinguishing which things are immovable objects and which things aren't, right? And so it always comes back to wisdom, right? And that is the real kicker here, is that we've got to be very clear about what those things are. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and even in the prayer, right, you're seeking divine guidance, which, I mean, <laughs> like you said, you haven't really found anyone who's perfectly figured it out, at least, you know, as we were opening up the episode. But similarly, I mean, 
yeah, these these aren't easy. And I think that's one thing that Stoicism kind of does well. You know, it doesn't necessarily assume to know the answers, but it simply says, you know, like the things which you know to be in your control, that you must kind of occupy your time with, right? And so at least, even if you don't occupy your time with every single possible thing you could possibly control, um, at least you know the things that you are occupying your time with you can control. Uh, at least that's the, the belief. That seems right. And just real quick, uh, I wanted to touch on 15, which I thought was really good. Remember that you must behave in life as at a dinner party. Is anything brought around to you? Put out your hand and take your share with moderation. Does it pass by you? Don't stop it. Is it not yet come? Don't stretch your desire towards it, but wait till it reaches you. Do this with regard to children, to wife, to public posts, to riches, and you'll eventually be a worthy partner of the feasts of the gods. And if you don't even take the things which are set before you, but are able to reject them, then you will not only be a partner of the feasts of the gods, but also of their empire. For by doing this, Diogenes, Heraclitus, and others like them deservedly became and were called divine. And so I love that one. And what's funny is the Dalai Lama, they, they asked him about, how do you know which monks are the most advanced? I think it was the Dalai Lama. And uh, he said that we can tell who the most advanced monks are because they're the ones that go up to the food line last. So they're the, they're the ones that go up and get their food at the very end. After everyone has already chosen what they want to have, they get what's left over. And they're the most advanced people. And so that, I think, is similar. Yeah, the, the cast of characters he named off at the end, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but, but no, I mean, it's really something. I mean, temperance, I think, you know, being in the modern age and everything, temperance is something where I, I think every single person just struggles with. You know, there's not only so much available now that you could easily kind of get what you want extremely easily. But then on top of that, you just have the means to do it, right? I mean, obviously being a slave, it's different. You know, of course, being a slave, though, it kind of cuts the other way, too, because once he got freedom, well, then he, you know, I mean, talking about trying to control your your passions once you get freedom, right? I mean, that's that's almost impossible. So, um, right. but I, I think I think this is a, a really good passage to, to just kind of tie into tons of things we've talked about before, but one of them is definitely temperance, because I do think that wisdom and temperance go hand in hand because the more you start focusing on the things that really matter the less you start attaching passion or desire to the things that really don't matter and i think the food line you know i mean of course you have to have sustenance but i think at the end of the day uh extremely advanced monks place importance on that pretty low on their their bar right because they're leaps and bounds ahead of where we should be right it's a practice right it's a practice of kind of reserving holding back which is going to produce temperance you know, that, yeah, that's a tough one. Temperance is hard. Uh, dealing with our relationship to painful things is much easier than dealing with our relationship to pleasurable things. At least in my life, that's the way I've experienced it. And uh, I've got one last one I was thinking about talking about. Absolutely. That's 34. And this is a great one because it kind of gives you like practical wisdom, practical knowledge, practical tips if you will, about what to do when faced with these kinds of issues we're talking about right now. <laughs> he says, if you are struck by the appearance of any promised pleasure, guard yourself against being hurried away by it, but let the affair wait your leisure and procure yourself some delay. Then bring to your mind both points of time, that in which you will enjoy the pleasure and that in which you will repent and reproach yourself after you have enjoyed it and set before you in opposition these 
how you will be glad and applaud yourself if you abstain. And even though it should appear to you a seasonable gratification, take heed that its enticing and agreeable and attractive force may not subdue you. But set in opposition to this, how much better it is to be conscious and having gained so great a victory. So great piece of advice uh, when wanting to resist base temptations and reminiscent, I think, of Spinoza, right? And his idea that uh, you fall into a state of melancholy when you engage in these kinds of activities. I know we all, in the, as you said, in the modern world, I think we routinely experience that. And uh, it's a good, good piece of advice. Take a step back, think it through, think about what the consequences will be, and try to experience, try to think about what the experience will be like. And hold that in opposition to the experience, the momentary pleasure and gratification that you might get by pursuing it. I mean, the other thing is, is that those momentary moments of pleasure that we obtain are not actually real happiness. What they are is a kind of temporary uh, subsiding of the misery, which is like the kind of undercurrent of our existence. So tonight we began our discussion on Stoicism, and it opened up uh, with the story of Zeno. We briefly chatted a little about Chrysippus and some of his many notable contributions, including logic, uh, which is not typically a thing found in, in Stoicism, at least not as chiefly as, as other schools of philosophic thought. And then we finished with Epictetus, and these are generally seen as the three early Stoics. Oh, we also briefly spoke of Cleanthes, throw him in there as well. And they laid the groundwork for the more commonly known Stoics that would come later, such as Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, which we'll get to uh, shortly. They were also all Greek, unlike Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, who are both Roman. But another through line to watch is how Stoicism is going to become the leading philosophical movement during the overlap between the ancient Greek and the Roman worlds, or the Greco-Roman world, and unsurprisingly had a very strong influence on Christianity, which we've briefly discussed, and that was born during this exact period. Its focus on inner peacefulness uh, flourished during the tumultuous time of the fall of the Greek Empire and the Roman Republic and the birth of the Roman Empire, because by the time that the Romans took up the cause, Stoicism was essentially the semi-official creed of the Roman political and literary world. For example, take Cicero. He did not agree with many Stoic ideas, but uh, particularly those on metaphysics and epistemology, but he aligned his ethical and political positions to that of the Roman Stoics. And so our next uh, episodes in this four-part series, we're going to revolve around, like I said, Roman Stoics. And in a very interesting way, the relatable and applicable nature of Stoicism turned what was espoused by emperors and nobles into a very accessible and powerful philosophy that we're still talking about today. It took form as a way to allow emperors and their advisors to find some sort of comfort or rest in their demanding and at times untenable circumstances. When decisions we couldn't even bring ourselves to make needed to be made, Stoicism was that solid ground that that these decisions were made upon. The focus is kind of like the resurgence of mindfulness and Buddhism and self-reflection today. It also gave a rekindling of the interconnectedness of all life on Earth, which we addressed with Epictetus. Now, to turn back to Epictetus for just a second, the passages we read were from his Enchiridion, which we mentioned, or it's also known as a handbook. It was a short manual of Stoic advice compiled by his discipline, Arian. And much of the content is derived from his Discourses, which is his most famous work, but 
it was meant to be a practical, life-improving book to implement Stoicism in someone's day-to-day -day life. But for linguistic reference, the word Enchiridion comes from in, meaning in, and care, meaning hand, and biblion, meaning book. So it's like a book in the hand. That's the handbook. Uh, but the work itself was actually well known in the ancient world, and even up until the medieval period, it was readily available. It was adapted for use in Greek-speaking monasteries, for example. It was translated then into Latin in the 1400s, and then many other European languages. And its 52 chapters are surprisingly short, keeping in mind he spent 30 years in slavery. Here's the final chapter, which I think is very poetic and meaningful. He says, In every circumstance, we should hold these maxims ready to hand. Lead me, O Zeus, and thou, O destiny, the way that I am bid you to go. To follow, I am ready. If I choose not, I make myself a wretch and still must follow. But whoso nobody yields unto necessity, we hold him wise and skilled in things divine. And the third also, O Credo, if it so pleases the gods, so let it be. Antius and Miletus are able to kill me indeed, but they cannot harm me. So just a quick question before closing out. Are there any concerns in your mind with a philosophy that doesn't address so much the ideas of the good, as we've discussed in the past, or some sort of objective sense of morality or virtue, like Stoicism doesn't seem to really address that head on? Buddhism might also be in a similar situation, but how do you, you know, as someone coming from someone who respects Pratic ideas a lot and their focus on this good to better yourself, how do you come to terms with something like Stoicism as we go forward? How should we kind of conceptualize this issue? Well, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because Chrysippus, when we were talking about like the three levels of reason or rational objects in philosophy, the kind of foundation has to be kind of locked in. And then when we get to Epictetus, we don't see that. So, I mean, I think there probably are a variety of opinions in Stoicism about this. But in terms of Epictetus, it seems to be about philosophy and action, you know? And in a sense, it's kind of, like you said, very reminiscent of Buddhism, where we have the kind of story about the arrow and the person who's been hit by an arrow in battle, and they're kind of laying on the battlefield, and uh, the doctor comes up to treat him, and the wounded soldier looks at the doctor and says, tell me, what kind of an arrow is this? Is it bone, or is it rock, or is it metal? And he says, well, don't worry about that. We need to remove the arrow or you're going to die. He says, okay, okay. Well, tell me, what kind of things help it to fly? Is it feathers or are there pieces of wood on the end or some other way of making the arrow fly straight? He says, no, no, don't worry about that now. If you worry about that, you're going to, you're going to die. And he says, well, what kind of wood is the shaft? Is it this wood or is it that wood? And so forth. And then ultimately the soldier dies on the battlefield and the kind of idea there is that uh, you've got to focus on the things that matter and what's important. And what's important is, I think, for people like Epictetus, is living well and, and flourishing as a person. And it might not be so important to answer questions about the fundamental nature of the good or first principles, because as we know, those are very difficult things to answer. Those are philosophical problems that philosophers want to answer because they want to understand the kind of complete picture of reality. But as an individual, 
wanting to deal with life on life's terms and wanting to flourish as much as one can flourish, given the ups and downs of life and the problems that we encounter, it might be better just to focus on moment by moment how to approach situations and what the best state of mind to have is. And that, I think that's kind of how Epictetus proceeds. He proceeds in a more kind of philosophy as a way of life way. With Plato and Socrates, we see a kind of unification of those two because we have Plato who's worried about epistemology and metaphysics and like, what can we know and what is the fundamental nature of reality as much as he's worried about living well and being happy. And that's one of the things that's great about Plato is that we get a kind of full, complete picture of all these things coming together. I think with Epictetus, it's like the Dhammapada or something like that, where in the Dhammapada, there's no answer about the fundamental nature of reality, but there's a lot about how to live well. Yeah, no, I, I think that's also kind of circles back to our idea about not just focusing on that which you can control, but essentially understanding how to control that which you can control, right? And I think that the Stoics, at least Epictetus, you know, thus far, we're going to talk about others and we can kind of compare and contrast, but I think Epictetus, at least thus far, I, I do think that's right. And, and, you know, for him, writing a handbook uh, says a lot. You know, the fact that he wants to have something that people can carry around on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, it seems to be very much like you're saying, practical, applied in your daily life, and so on. So I, I, I think that's correct. No, that's right. And, and it's reminiscent, right, of the Dhammapada and the Tao Te Ching. Yeah. Because the Dhammapada and the Tao Te Ching is a series of aphorisms and I think in the Dhammapada, we have 26. In the Tao Te Ching, we have 108. So uh, limited in number, easy to kind of uh, memorize for a person who doesn't have modern television in their life or <laughs> the internet. <laughs> so relatively easy to memorize because we're talking about a kind of relatively short piece of work like the same thing with the handbook, of Epictetus' handbook. We could memorize it, right? And so we could certainly carry it around and refer to it and we could become very familiar with it and, and have a depth of appreciation for it on a very deep level, much more so, I think, than most people have for written works today because we have a kind of different relationship to the written word now. And even our ability to, to penetrate topics deeply and profoundly has been altered by our relationship to modern media. No, absolutely. And, you know, as we travel along this stoic road, here are a couple ideas to keep in mind uh, that will also help us better understand and keep inside the mindset of stoicism. So to live a smooth life, we should live according to nature. We do not control external events. We can only control our thoughts, our opinions, our decisions, and our duties. We've all been given the inner resources we need to thrive. We should strive to eliminate toxic emotions such as hope, fear, and anger. Progression is the most important thing even more so than perfection. So we want to thank you all for listening, and we hope that this discussion inspires you as well as our future discussions on Stoicism and philosophic thought. And as always, we'll see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends.